Congressman Jim Davis has a reputation. He almost never gets angry. But Davis is about to get some news that will make his blood boil. I had gone to dinner with a family friend in Washington, and I got a phone call in the middle of dinner, and it was Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Davis is a Florida Democrat. Wasserman Schultz would later rise to chair the Democratic National Committee. But when she interrupts Davis's dinner in March 2005, she's a freshman in Congress for less than three months. And she called to tell me that she was very upset because she had just found out that there was a plan to bring a bill um, to Congress on an extremely expedited basis. On the phone, Wasserman Schultz tells Davis that House Majority Leader Tom DeLay is set to fast-track a bill meant to save Terry Schiavo's life. DeLay plans to call a vote without a floor debate or a quorum. That's not a huge deal. Congress waives the rules all the time. But Davis feels this vote is outrageous. In his view, the U.S. House is about to trample on matters already decided in a state court. It was one of the most significant examples of abuse by government I'd ever seen. He tells Wasserman Schultz. I understand this issue well enough to know we need to stand up and fight this. From World Radio and the creative team that brings you the world and everything in it, this is Lawless. I see a wicked man walking down a broken road. I see a ransomed man in the storm trying not to fall for gold. Devil's at the door trying to take control. But the Lord's gonna scatter his bones. I'm New York Times bestselling author and World Magazine senior writer, Lynn Vincent. Come on, yeah. Lawless is a new true crime podcast that examines a frightening fact of American life that not every crime is against the law. In America, the essential value of being human has eroded to the point that what once would have been prosecuted as a crime is now unexceptional, even celebrated. In season one of Lawless, we're investigating the Terry Schiavo story, a case that in 2005 shocked the world. This is episode four, For Love or Money. Terry Schiavo loved Florida, and she loved to drive. Two years after Michael and Terry got married, they packed up their car and left Pennsylvania for good. With Michael in the passenger seat, Terry steered their car to I-95 outside Philly, stepped on the gas, and headed south. It was 1986. Ferris Bueller was cutting class. This is my ninth sick day this semester. If I go for 10, I'm probably going to have to barf up a lung. President Ronald Reagan was promoting liberty. We can enlarge the family of free nations if we will defend the unalienable rights of all God's children to follow their dreams. And Tom Cruise was box office king. Talk to me, Goose. Roger, I got him. Contact 20 left at 30 miles, 900 knots closure. Even before they got married, Michael and Terry had talked about moving to Florida. Terry worked at Prudential, but Michael wasn't happy in his job outside Philadelphia. Bob and Mary Schindler owned a condo in St. Petersburg, and 
they agreed to let Michael and Terry rent it. And when the time came for the big move, Terry was ecstatic. (laughs) As Michael and Terry flew down I-95 toward a sunny new chapter in life, they didn't have money, but they did have love. They had no idea they were headed into history. November 5th, 1992, at the old Pinellas County Courthouse in Clearwater, Florida, Judge Philip Frederico presiding. All rise. Almost exactly two years before, Michael had filed a malpractice suit against Terry's OBGYN, Dr. Stephen Eigel, and her general practitioner, Dr. Joel Prower. On Terry's behalf, Michael claimed she had suffered from a secret battle with bulimia and that both doctors should have caught it. At first, both Eigel and Prower denied this claim. I visited the old courthouse twice in 2021. It's neoclassical, tan brick with four towering white columns. It's a big contrast with the sleek flagship headquarters of Scientology, which sits within sight half a block away. On my first visit, COVID restrictions kept me out of the courthouse. On my second visit, a very kind deputy gave me a tour. Downstairs used to be uh, a holding cell, the, the original jail. How old is this building? This is 100 years. 100 years. Some Pinellas County lawyers call this the Inherit the Wind Courthouse. After the 1960 film that dramatized the infamous 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. The wood panel courtroom looks just like the one in the movie. It was in this place that Michael Scheibo and Terry with him took their first steps into legal and medical history. Lawless is made possible by listeners like you. Additional support comes from Samaritan Ministries, a biblical solution to healthcare, connecting Christians across the nation who care for one another spiritually and financially when a medical need arises. More at SamaritanMinistries.org slash World Podcast. Though Terry was a named plaintiff in the lawsuit, she wasn't in the courtroom. But she could have been. In fact, Michael's attorneys had initially planned to wheel her in, introduce her to the jury. But in the end, they made a video to show the jury instead. More on that later. The malpractice trial begins at 9 a.m. Dr. Stephen Eigel takes a seat beside his defense attorney, Ken Deacon. Dr. Joel Prower had settled out of court for a quarter of a million dollars. But on the eve of trial, Eigel rejected a settlement offer. A couple of possibilities here as to why. Either Eigel's insurance company thought they could win the case, or Eigel himself didn't believe he'd done anything wrong. But Glenn Woodworth immediately gets to work trying to prove Eigel had done something wrong. Remember, Woodworth is Michael's attorney. He's a malpractice lawyer from Tampa Bay. 
Woodworth builds his argument on several data points. Terry's iced tea habit and her life-threatening potassium level. Terry also had irregular menstrual cycles. But her mother, Mary Schindler, said that wasn't unusual for her daughter. When Terry visited doctors Eigel and Prower, they just would always say, oh, you know, just watch your period or, you know, make sure that you get them regularly. Well, Terry never had regular periods, ever. And now, Woodworth argues, everyone knows why, because Terry had bulimia. Woodworth also emphasizes Terry's weight loss, which he says caused stretch marks and sagging skin. Woodworth calls Michael to the witness stand. After you all moved to Florida, did Terry lose more weight? Yes, she did. Michael Shibo still hasn't responded to my multiple interview requests, so that's not his voice, but it is his testimony. There's no courtroom audio available for the malpractice trial. These are voice actors. And how far down the weight scale did she go? I can remember Terry being about 110, 115 pounds. But Eigel's defense attorney, Ken Deacon, gets Michael to admit that he rarely saw Terry because they worked opposite shifts. Deacon also produces Terry's medical records, which seem to show that Michael's memory of her weight, including claims of wild swings of 20 to 25 pounds, actually conflicts with documented evidence. Deacon tells the jury that when Terry saw her GP, Dr. Prower, in 1987, she weighed 119 pounds. That was the year after she and Michael moved to Florida. Two years later, she saw Dr. Eigel. He recorded her weight at 121 pounds. That was 1989. The year after that, Terry visited Eigel again. Her weight, 124 pounds. That visit was in February 1990, the same month Michael says he found Terry unresponsive on their hallway floor. But in court, it's not always hard data that sways a jury. Sometimes it's which lawyer has the more compelling story. Deacon represented an insurance company. And Woodworth? He was fighting for a tragic young couple in love. After Michael and Terry moved down from Pennsylvania in 1986, they settled into the Schindler's condo. Terry got that job at a Prudential branch in St. Pete. At first, Michael struggled to find work, so the couple was often late on the rent. But the Schindlers let it slide. After a couple years of job hopping through the restaurant industry, Michael landed the manager job with the Greco brothers at their high-end Italian restaurant, Agostino's. A few months later, the Schindlers sold their Philly-area home after Bob's material handling business failed. Then they, too, moved to St. Pete. And so did Terry's brother, Bobby. Because Michael and Terry worked opposite schedules, Terry spent a lot of time with her parents and their friends, Fran Kassler and Sherry Payne. Sometimes, Sherry remembers, Michael came along, too. Um, the one that really sticks <laughs> out was uh, when we were at that concert at Grill, right? And they shut off the street. You know, no cars could come. So we had blankets and everything. And 
uh, Terry was there, and Michael, her husband, was there, and Bob and Mary, and the Klings were there, and uh, it was so much fun. Terry's olive skin browned in the Florida sun. A family photo from that period shows her smiling on a beach in a bandeau bikini with pastel geometrics. She's tanned and slim, but with womanly curves. No more beach trips now, though. No more bikinis. Terry's in a nursing home, completely dependent on her caregivers. It's been tough on everyone. For Michael, money isn't just tight. It's almost non-existent. Unable to work, he lives on Terry's disability payments from Social Security. And the stress of her care weighs on him as he slogs through a haze of depression and sometimes rage. By this time, Terry lives in a nursing home called Sable Palms. And Michael isn't happy with the care she's getting. He starts railing against the Sable Palm staff, hunts down staff members and chews them out, asking why they aren't doing their jobs. Michael's friend Dan Greco says he doesn't remember that happening. But if it's true, it's understandable. Here's a guy that's 26 or 27. His life, as he expected it, just ended on a Sunday morning, right, in 1990. He's angry, he's angry, he wasn't angry with me, but he was angry at everybody. He was angry at life. How do you deal with something like that? I mean, those first three years were horrible. Michael files grievance forms against the nursing home staff one report after another, accumulating a stack of complaints an inch thick. Years later, after Michael filed his petition to have Terry's feeding tube removed, a court-appointed investigator would interview 13 members of the Sable Palm staff. Several said Michael yelled in the hallways, intimidated staff, and brought nurses to tears. The staff learns to dread his tirades. They say he's a bully harassing them about Terry's care and screaming at them when they don't follow his instructions to the letter. But several witnesses at the time noticed Michael's dedication. Michael Shivo is a nursing home administrator's nightmare. He has had nurses, aides, administrators in tears because of his overbearing demeanor and demands that Terry get the best care possible. That's attorney George Philos. He'll become a major figure in the Terry Schiavo case. You'll meet Philos in episode six. Dr. David Barris also has great regard for Michael. Barris says Michael is devoted to Terry, perhaps obsessively so. Bob and Mary also notice Michael's dedication. They never thought their daughter had an eating disorder, but it sounds plausible at least. What else could explain what happened? And Michael tells them that if he wins the case... The money is going to be used for her to be taken care of, you know, and she's going to have a house that's for him on one side, and then the other side is going to be a house for her with everything in it that could, she could possibly have. It's like rehab and nurses and... But Bobby Schindler is a little more cautious. My dad was spending all of his savings. He wasn't receiving any rent from the condo that he was letting Michael and Terry stay at at the time. And 
Um, and yeah, I just said, you know, make sure Michael honors what he says. And I remember my father said that he, he wasn't going to do that, that he, he had trusted that Michael would do what he said he was going to do. Back in courtroom B, Michael testifies to exactly that. Not only will he take care of Terry, he's going to study nursing so he can bring her home, take care of her himself. In other testimony, Michael says he never noticed any unusual eating habits. And he had no indication whatsoever that Terry had an eating disorder. She ate a huge omelet most Sundays, cooked it, and ate it all. Sometimes the couple would order in. We'd order a pizza and she'd eat practically all of it. Doctors also testify on Terry's behalf, including Dr. Barris. From the witness stand, he tells the jury about Terry's cognition, what she can and can't do. He says that sable palm therapists have been able to get Terry to follow a one-step command. Not always, but she could do it. Barris said this meant Terry might be able to regain some brain function and make progress. Glenn Woodworth wants the jury to see for themselves what Terry's life is like. So he shows them a 20-minute video. Michael rises from his chair at the plaintiff's table and joins Woodworth on the main floor of the courtroom. From there, he narrates what's happening in the video. Mike, if you will, just as we go along, tell the jury what's happening here. Uh, Right here, basically, you can see she's already had her shower and everything. We would get her dressed, put her shoes and socks on. The video goes on, and Michael tells the jury what they're seeing. Michael and Mary working together to care for Terry. And I usually do a little bit of range of motion. Ah, she doesn't like that very much. No, no, she doesn't. She does feel pain. Wait, what? Remember, back in 1990, Dr. Garcia de Souza diagnosed Terry as being in a persistent vegetative state. PBS patients have sleep-wake cycles, but they're not aware of their environments. And by definition, PBS patients don't feel pain. More scenes from Terry's typical day. Michael putting makeup on her, moving her between her bed and her chair, stretching out her arms and bracing her legs to prevent contractures. Terry has a feeding tube attached to her abdomen. In the video, a speech pathologist massages her lips and throat. You hoping he can get her to the point where she swallows? Yes, she just swallowed that time. If therapists can teach Terry to swallow consistently, they can take her off the feeding tube. She's gotten her food and hydration that way for two years. She'll continue to do so if she can't learn to swallow. Remember, this is November, 1992. At trial, neither Michael nor his attorneys tell the jury that Terry wouldn't want to be kept alive by a feeding tube. Then Michael's attorney asks a key question. How do you feel about being married to Terry now? I feel wonderful. She's my life. I, I, I wouldn't trade her for the world. Again, this isn't Michael's voice, but those are his words read from a court transcript. Michael says he believes in his wedding vows. He chokes up at this point, shedding tears in full view of the jury. 
Woodworth asked the judge for a short recess. Then... You okay? Yeah. I'm sorry. You believe in your wedding vows. What do you mean by that? I believe in the vows I took with my wife. I'm Michael Tech, you, Teresa, to be my wife. Through sickness and health, for richer or poor, I, I married my wife because I love her. And I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I'm going to do that. In his closing statement, Woodworth makes an emotional appeal. There is life, life inside this woman. Something is flickering there. How much, we don't know. She is trapped in that body. She'll be trapped the next 51.27 years, half a century. He's referring to the number of years doctors project that Terry will live. Michael had said he believed in his wedding vows and that he would take care of Terry for the rest of his life. That's going to cost a lot of money. Woodworth asks the jury to award the Shivos $20 million. It'll take that jury less than three hours to return a verdict. But what the jury didn't know may have been as important as what they did. At the same time Michael Schiavo was giving his emotional testimony about his wife, he was seeing another woman. Had been for almost a year. Her name was Cindy Brashers. They got to be good friends, and maybe more than friends. In 2001, when the Schiavo case first crept into Tampa Bay area news, Cindy Brashers dialed into a radio call-in show. I was the first girl that Michael Shivo dated after his wife had a... Michael's relationship with Cindy didn't become public until then. Each remembers the relationship differently, and sometimes they even contradict themselves. We'll explore that in a future episode. But in a 1993 deposition, a lawyer asked Michael whether his relationship with Cindy Brashers was intimate. He said yes, but he would later say they never actually dated. And that deposition answer? Michael would say the lawyer never defined what intimate meant. But Michael and Cindy did hug and kiss, and according to Cindy, they even talked about marriage. Cindy says Michael asked her once, what would you do if I asked you to marry me? Cindy says she told Michael, I'd say you're married to somebody else and you can't ask me that question. Michael has an explanation for all that. He says Bob Schindler told him to do it, to move on with his life. Even told Michael to go out and find somebody to sleep with. It's unclear whether Michael slept with Cindy, but they did spend a lot of time together. Cindy said they talked a lot about Terry, her condition, her medical care, and how she interacted with Michael. He said that he would go through the nursing home and he said immediately, um, as soon as he got near the door, her head was already looking at the door because she would recognize his voice. Right. And she would start crying when he got ready to leave. But there are other things that don't quite line up with Michael's heartfelt testimony about how much he loved his wife. Terry loved animals and couldn't stand to see them hurt. Remember that time she thought she'd run over a cat? She was hysterical. 
At the time of her brain injury, Terry owned two cats, Tolly and Shayna. Terry found Shayna first, an emaciated, flea-bitten kitten on the side of the road. The vet said there was nothing to be done for Shayna. But Terry disagreed. She stayed home from work for two days to nurse the kitten back to health. Later, she worried that Shayna would be lonely. So Terry adopted a second cat from a shelter, Tolly. Terry picked Tolly when she found out he'd been abused. When Michael gave up the Shiva's apartment, he had no place for the cats. Mary says she begged Michael to take Tolly and Shayna to a shelter. Instead, he had them euthanized. And the fact that they were Terry's, you know, why, why would he destroy, you know, what she loved? That's Fran Kessler. Why would he want to do that? I just can't imagine doing that to an animal that's perfectly healthy. I understand if you couldn't take care of them, then you give them away or you, you know, but you don't just put them down. Michael says it was Mary who told him to do it. Back at old Pinellas County Courthouse, the malpractice jury doesn't know about Cindy Brasher's or the cats. They reached their verdict in two hours and 46 minutes. Here's in a jury box and seated, Your Honor. They had to answer seven questions, the most important of which was question one. Was there negligence on the part of Dr. Stephen Eigel, which was a legal cause of injury to Teresa Schiavo? The jury's answer, yes. But they don't go for the $20 million Woodworth asked for. Instead, they award Terry $4.8 million in damages. They award Michael $2.1 million for what's called loss of consortium, the loss of Terry's companionship and affection. The verdict was enormous. It was the biggest verdict, at least in the county that year. But there's a catch. The jury concludes that Terry did indeed have bulimia. That means they held her partially responsible for her own brain damage. In some states, it's called contributory negligence. As the victim, if you contributed to it, in some states, you can't recover anything. In Florida, it's a comparative negligence statute, which means that the jury, they attribute percentages to the plaintiff and the defendant. So they found a 70-30 comparative negligence split. That reduced the initial award by about 70%. And so some math was required. In the end, the jury awarded about $1.56 million to Terry. About 686,000 went directly to Michael. After attorney's fees, Michael says he received about $300,000, worth about $600,000 today. On January 27, 1993, the court issued final approval of that settlement. The money was in the bank. And three weeks after that, everything changed. It's Valentine's Day, 1993, a Sunday, 
Terry Schiavo sits in her chair at Sable Palms, dressed with her hair and makeup done by one of the nurses. Michael brings her a dozen red roses and sets them on a table. Then he pulls out his school books. He's taking classes to get certified as an EMT. He plans to sit next to Terry while he studies for a few hours. After a while, Bob and Mary come in. They greet Michael, say hello to Terry. Then Bob walks over to Michael. He said to him, to Michael, Michael, I thought we were gonna use some of this money to take care of Terry and get her rehab. He means the money from the malpractice settlement. Since the trial, Bob had asked Michael twice about his promises to them and to Terry. Michael always said, we'll talk about it later. Then on Valentine's Day, Bob asks Michael again. He stood up and he got so mad at Bob. Mary says Michael tells them there is no money. And then things get heated. No one is sure who started yelling first. Michael said it was Bob. The Schindlers say it was Michael. He took the books and he threw them off the table and they went flying up against the wall. And she's not getting any rehab. You're not getting anything. Bob goes toe to toe with Michael, all five foot eight versus Michael's six foot six. The two men scream at each other, red faced and furious, hurling accusations and threats. Mary, who's tiny at five foot three, jumps up and gets between them, trying to calm them down, trying to stop one of them from punching the other. Then Michael shuts it all down. And, and that was that. And he walked out of the room and he says, I'm, he says, you can talk to my attorney. The Schindlers are devastated. And Mary is terrified about what Michael's going to do next. Michael has a different version of the Valentine's Day fight at Sable Palms. Michael says Bob planted himself in front of the chair Michael was sitting in and demanded to know about the malpractice money. How much am I going to get? Bob was talking about the money Michael had gotten for loss of consortium. That was the only part of the jury award over which Michael had direct control. Michael says he tried to stay cool, but that Bob just kept pushing and pushing. So Michael said, you know something? I'm just gonna give it all to Terry. Michael said that's when things escalated. He says his father-in-law has been obsessed with the malpractice settlement. He'd driven everyone around him crazy, calculating and recalculating the numbers. Dan Greco says, Bob came in to see me and asked how much he and Mary should be getting. Do you remember his exact words or a close paraphrase? Are Mary and I entitled, are we entitled to any comp compensation out of this? We've taken care of Terry, you know. Would that be because they had drained their savings and mortgaged their house and would like to be made whole again, that kind of thing? I don't remember it being that. But Bobby Schindler says it was exactly that. I do remember telling my dad, you know, Dad, maybe you should get something in writing from Michael that he's going to use the money, um, you know, for Terry and also reimburse you all the money that you, um, you, you know, that to help him at the time. 
Meanwhile, people outside this family fight are also concerned about Michael's behavior. Don't forget, he's clashed with the Sable Palm staff for months. But that day, February 14, 1993, Sable Palm's administrator, Emily Layton, has had enough. She files for a restraining order against Michael. According to the filing, Michael had come to Sable Palms two days before. He acted in a belligerent manner, causing fear of bodily injury to the staff members and or residents. Administrators at the nursing home talked him down. Now, though, two days later, a screaming match in Terry's room, right next to where she was sitting? Layton wants to keep Michael from entering the premises and from contacting any of the staff or residents. But the restraining order doesn't go through. A judge denies the request. But Bobby Schindler isn't about to be denied. When he hears about Michael's fight with his parents, he's furious. I had a meltdown. I got extremely upset. I, um, I got so mad, I punched a hole in uh, the hallway, my bedroom door. I was extremely mad. And I grabbed my keys, and I was going to go over and confront Michael. Next time on Lawless. He had this money uh, that was supposed to be used to take care of Terry. So that created a conflict for him. If something happened to her, that money would be his. It wouldn't be spent on her uh, well-being, which to me uh, was just a clear uh, conflict of interest. Lawless is a production of World Radio. Our executive producer is Paul Butler. Our production assistant is Lillian Hammond. Rich Rosel is our sound engineer. Music by Will Sheehan. Audio support from Creative Genius Productions. Lawless is reported and written by Anna Johansson Brown, Bonnie Pritchett, and me, Lynn Vincent. For a list of additional audio sources in this episode, visit lawlesspodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. Lawless is made possible by listeners like you. Additional support comes from Samaritan Ministries, a community of Christians who, through prayer, encouragement, and financial support, care for one another when there's a medical need. It's biblical, affordable health care sharing with no network restrictions, and new members are welcome any time of the year. More at SamaritanMinistries.org slash world podcast. Oh,